0: Socio-political
1: issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation from Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is you don't have to yell with your host Dan Sally. Welcome, amigos! It is your friendly neighborhood bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting, and we are at episode ninety-two of you don't have to yell. I have had a little dental work today, so apologies if I'm sounding a little subdued. Now, I have talked a lot on this show about how the road to Trump was paved by the Democratic Party, who often endorsed policies that went against the best interests of the unions, who often put them in office until 2016. And this week's guest, Dan McCrory, saw that firsthand during his 37-year career with AT&T, where he spent time both working on the front lines and in union leadership. And he documented what he saw as policies that gradually eroded the quality of life for the working class in his book, Capitalism Killed the Middle Class, 25 Ways the System is Rigged Against You. And I had him on this episode to discuss. Now, an interesting note, After talking with Dan, I've come to the conclusion that the slow death of the labor movement has been as much a suicide as a murder. It'll make sense as you listen. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. And now I read your bio and you have had a fairly wide, varied career. I think you've had everything on your resume except for astronaut from what I can see.
0: I'm still working on that one.
1: Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Well, I'm I'm right behind you there. One of the things that I noted when I was when I was growing up here, just outside of Boston, is how the union membership was solidly Democratic, and how there was you know really solid support for for uh, the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party um, also in turn uh, helped them out um, politically or helped them out with policy. So I'm I'm interested in diving into that, but I think you know before we get to that and before we get to your book. To maybe set the stage, can you talk about what your working environment was like when you started with AT&T 37 years ago and maybe how that changed over time?
0: Well, I started at the phone company in uh, 1973, mm-hmm. uh, right out of high school. Uh, I was uh, originally uh, uh, working for a, a, comp- a company, a, a Pump and Gas, and uh, okay. then the first gas crisis hit, and... Um, there was no work, so uh, but the company that I was working for I had to guarantee you so many hours a week pay, even if you weren't there. Uh, I don't I understand it, it wasn't a, a union place, but I would you know, go party with my friends, go pick up my paycheck, and then go party some more. So, okay, my, my grandmother got tired of that, and she said, Go uh, apply at the phone company. Oh. So, uh, they actually tested me for a non traditional job. Uh, there was a big thing back in the early seventies. Was to have women doing men's, uh, typically uh, traditionally men's work, and vice versa. So I took a test for operator and for uh, clerical duties, and that's when I was hired as as a a, a clerk. And uh, so I walked in not knowing what uh, corporations were like or or what to expect, and, and I found that AT and T. actually, I worked for Mountain Bell first. It was very uh, much a uh, uh, ma bell it was very womb-like it was very family oriented mm-hmm. one nice thing about mountain bell was they had uh, a library that you could go to they had a nurse's station and actually had a check cashing place when you picked up your paycheck uh all those uh, kind of uh, pluses that i i never envisioned for phone companies they had correspondence courses so you could uh learn more about a particular part of your job and maybe get a promotion out of it. So uh, that's the kind of environment that I walked into. And um, like I said, I didn't know what to expect. It wasn't until the next year when they decided to start bringing in these computers and all these uh, big disks and things like that, that had to be in a cool temperature that, um, so they did that, and they said, okay, it's July. You still have to wear a sweater because it's going to get cold in here. So yeah. we, said, we, we said, no, that's not right. And uh, so we went on a wildcat strike. The union was helping us, winking the whole time, saying, this is illegal because wildcat strikes are. And uh, we uh, ended up prevailing, and they started cold rooms for Got our it. computer. That was a, a major victory, and I saw that the labor movement could actually do something to uh, help people on
1: a day to day basis. Yeah, and now, how quickly or how far into your career there uh, did you start to get involved with union leadership?
0: Union leadership didn't happen until the, the 1980 when I moved to um, L.A. and uh, got involved with the union here, mm-hmm. and uh, they they immediately uh, grabbed me and started. Uh, teaching me about politics and how important it was to be politically involved. So I started meeting all sorts of elected officials, and we uh, walked precincts for them. We would phone bank, and um, they have uh, something called the initiative process out here in California, which uh, was supposed to be a very grassroots thing where if uh, you didn't see the uh, legislature dealing with an issue that you thought was important, you could actually uh, write an initiative and take it directly to the voters to decide whether or not uh, that should happen, uh, but unfortunately, that's also been uh, uh, taken up by the uh, uh, by corporate interests, and, and uh, they've pretty much taken over the process of, of uh, writing initiatives and getting them passed. For instance, we just had one with uh, with uh, that was um, Uber and Lyft, and they were trying to keep uh, because we had passed a law here saying those people are employees mm-hmm. and they're being exploited. But uh, uh, what the, uh, Uber did when they lost it in the legislature was they created an initiative, took it to the voters, ran some great commercials with, with their employees saying, "We don't need uh, to uh, to be employees. We, we we like this free agency type stuff." And and so they were able to uh, uh, get uh, anything the legislature had tried to do overturned, and and uh, and they're using that as a template when they go to other states now to try to make sure that, uh, it doesn't crop up again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And for those of you unfamiliar too, uh, with, with what happened, you know, California state legislature had passed, uh, probably one of the, I think most progressive bills when it comes to protecting the rights of those kind of gig workers. So like you said, those specifically Uber, but I think you could apply it to folks who are working for DoorDash and, and, and other, um, you know, other for fee services like that. And Uber actually went and overturned that with a direct access ballot initiative, which is something, again, if you have $30 million laying around, you can generally do with ease. Um, I guess like from from your standpoint, you know, you spent a lot of time at AT&T, you know, you yeah. really got to see uh, in a lot of ways and, it, I, and n- not to put words in your mouth, but, you know, I think what you got to see was really kind of the, maybe the decline in the labor movement, or at least the decline in their clout. So to help me fill in the blanks, can you tell me like, what, what, ch- what were some of the bigger changes that took place that really started to reduce the power of the labor movement?
0: Oh, unknown to me uh, right after i uh, was hired um, this company called mci worldcom sued att because they were being blocked from entering the long distance market which was the big money maker back in the 70s so uh, they took um uh, att to federal court and they had this back and forth for many years and finally there was this guy named judge green who uh, said that uh, okay you're going to have to pay a little fine because att didn't want to pay any fine. And and MCI wanted a huge fine. So they uh, paid a little fine, but they also agreed to break up the phone company. And that's when things went uh, sideways because we were, we weren't used to innovation. We weren't used to competition. We were the only game in town and we kind of liked it that way. Um, So that uh, changed things completely into a more competitive environment and and these seven baby bells that were, that, uh, uh, were the remnants of AT&T uh, fought for uh, market share and things like that. And, and pretty soon they were gobbling each other up like uh, the uh, Terminator movie. And pretty yeah. soon came back together again into one company, but this was SBC out of Texas. But they knew that AT&T was a more tried and true name. So they, changed their name to ATT. t So it's not really AT&T, but yet it is.
1: Do you feel like once that competition came in, is that really when maybe the company started paying more attention to the bottom line than they did the quality of life of the folks working for them?
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah, we uh, back in, I think it was the 1964 World's Fair, they showed a picture phone and uh, everybody said, oh, I want one of those, but uh, at and didn't come out with it until they got into a more competitive market and they were sort of forced into doing innovative things like a picture. So.
1: Yeah. Do do you think they could have like, so I guess like kind of going back, looking at that, you know, I think for the folks watching this or the folks listening, you know, some might be thinking to themselves, well, you know, uh, a company like AT&T that might've been protected from competition probably could afford, more than they could once, um, competition entered in. And, you know, to your point, it seems like they got a little more innovative. Um, so do you feel, do, do you feel that they could have, I guess, looking back, do you feel they could have become more innovative and more competitive and still kind of held on to some of those benefits that really gave folks who worked there a, a good quality of life?
0: Yes, they could have, and it has to do with the corporate culture. Uh, they started trying all sorts of different things to uh, to change um, the uh, the way that we handle business, I guess you could say. Yeah. And uh, what they did was, they, uh, and in the case of California, they came in with something called uh, leadership development. And that was a, uh, a way of sort of uh, bringing things into um, a more... Um, equal uh, basis all of a sudden management was te- uh, talking to the union in a more respectful tones and and we were actually they said we're wearing this together we've got to do these things together so mm-hmm. we started seeing things like that and there was something called quality of work life that was based on uh, things that they were doing in Japan to try to uh, work out things at the shop floor rather than having to have something come down from on high <clears throat> excuse me so what we saw, in that case, was uh, a uh, real move to um, for everybody to work together to to handle innovation to to maybe take um, some of the steps that we had gone through before uh, out of the, and streamline the process to getting something um, uh, approved, to, uh, whether it be for the employees or for the company. In the case of Japan, it was more company oriented, but um, the union. And the management weren't sure what they wanted to get into here in California because the union has always handled wages, hours, and working conditions. And the union felt threatened by this whole quality of work-life process as taking away some of their power. So eventually, uh, uh, both sides agreed to that uh, we were not going to do this anymore. And uh, I think that we suffered for that, and we employees, that is.
1: Got it. it. So it sounds to me like this was kind of… This was uh, this is a bit of like a two way street here. It sounds like union leadership was almost as much to blame as management. Am I am I hearing you right?
0: You are. I uh, I was actually one of the first people to tra- be trained on this you know, quality work life stuff, and uh, for some reason they liked me. And <clears throat> for you, know, I was training other committees on how to uh, things like conflict resolution and uh, ways of negotiating with with management on things that the employees wanted in the workplace. We got outside uh, eating areas that were very nice and and, uh, a whole, a lot of things that we wouldn't have got if we hadn't uh, gone through this, this period where we
1: uh, were treated equally. It sounds to me like, you know, one of the, one of the big maybe missed opportunities was a chance for the unions in in collaboration with management to to really kind of reinvent labor relations and really reinvent, exactly. yeah, and reinvent the way they looked at that. What, what were some of the other changes you saw that you think were particularly harmful towards the workers?
0: Well, they eventually uh, decided that, since that wasn't going to work, that they were going to uh, be more um, ag- aggressive and more authoritarian. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's one of the things that we saw almost immediately once that was um, put by the wayside. And uh, it, it was changing from being nice guys to being jerks again. And uh, okay. it, 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 uh, it didn't fly too well. Uh, it was interesting yeah. because uh, before they got rid of it, we were at this big meeting and uh, somebody said, well, what do you think about this, Dan? And I said, well, I think the first time <clears throat> contract negotiations come up, this is going to go out the window. And uh, I turned around and there was a vice president sitting right behind me who heard the whole thing. So um, I don't know if I undermined the process by, uh, by sh- uh, shooting my mouth up or uh, just saw what was going to happen. Because I, I knew where both sides were coming out this, uh, with the negotiation process. One thing that we learned in negotiations is a company comes in saying we're starting from ground zero and uh, forget everything you have everything uh, you want is, is up for grabs. And uh, but we're, we're starting at ground zero. Whereas the union says, no, what we're doing is we're starting for what we have now. And we're building on that. So to- totally different mindset. And it makes all the difference at the bargaining table.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, I want to kind of like, I want to go, I want to go kind of macro here because, you know, I'm guessing right now we're starting to get into the 80s or 90s, right? And now at this point in time, the Democratic Party was still solidly pro union. So they were still very solidly walking in lockstep with the unions. And again, kind kind of getting back to my upbringing here in Boston, if you were a union household, you were a diehard Democrat hands down. You were a diehard Democrat, without a doubt. (laughs) Now, we start to get into the 90s and something else happens. And I'd love your comment on this, which is, first, we have NAFTA.
0: That wasn't first. Actually, uh, when Reagan was, um, right before he got elected, uh, they were having the problems with the air traffic controllers. Yeah. Because they said, our job's getting very, very dangerous. You need to do something about that. And uh, their union was called PATCO. And Uh, Reagan said, wrote them a letter that I've seen a copy of the letter saying that if you help me get elected, I will help you. So uh, they're pretty much a quasi-military type uh, job anyway. So th- they were very conservative. And they said, OK, we'll help you get elected. Um, what happened was the, the day after he got elected, he said, uh, OK, you need to go back to work. And if you don't go back to work, you're, you're uh, permanently replaced. And that's where we started using that term rather than fired, because it's mm-hmm. illegal to fire for union activity, but you can permanently replace them. 11,000 uh, air traffic controllers were fired summarily. And uh, then Reagan was also the one that uh, created this experiment called the Doris, which was the precursor to NAFTA. So what he did was encourage companies to, to go to Mexico and set up business there, excuse me, including uh, Zenith TV and a lot of others that uh, just totally left and went to Mexico because uh, Mexico, even though they had environmental laws, they weren't as um, strict. They weren't as enforced as they were here. So what mm-hmm. we saw was uh, even though they moved across Rio Grande and, and were working in this environment where they had to uh, pay workers a lot less and they had uh, these uh, non uh, binding uh, environmental laws. Uh, they uh, saw the, uh, what happened was uh, all this pollution started moving across the river because of course, pollution doesn't recognize borders. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was uh, some cleanups that had to be done, but uh, for uh, the most part, the Republicans and Reagan said, this has been a success. We should do more of this. And then in 1992, as we all know, Bill Clinton decided uh, to uh to, um co-opt the republican agenda which meant that uh he was going to do everything he could for trade and uh, we call uh clinton uh, neoliberal because he uh neoliberals uh, said that uh it's okay to, uh, to to use this kind of money for for trade and things like that and um uh, I, went, uh, I was on jury duty with a, a congressman named Howard Berman at the time. And I said, y- you voted for NAFTA. That's a horrible thing. And he said, no, it's going to bring jobs. But what we've seen is that since the year 2000, uh, this country has lost 5.5 million uh, factory jobs. And uh, since 1990, we've lost over 12 and a half million. Uh, factory jobs. So NAFTA has been devastating to working class and to good paying union
1: jobs. Yeah, and the, the thing I hear again and again from folks about globalization isn't so much the trade agreements, but more that the playing field isn't level. Because to your point, you know what you can get away with manufacturing something in Mexico or in China or in some other country is going to be vastly different. Than what you can get get away with in the United States. That's taking wages out of the equation, you know. There's, exactly. There, yeah, and it's it's funny too because you know for for those who don't remember, uh, Clinton's first couple years, and I remember them because my dad was the rare like Boston Irish. Born and raised in a working class household who turned Republican. Like, I think he was just the contrarian in the family or something like that. And so I knew all about Clinton's first couple of years because my dad never stopped talking about it. But, you know, Clinton's first few years in office were actually pretty progressive. I mean, he tried to pass universal health care, for instance. Yep. Um, and he got shot down. It really wasn't until the Republican takeover of Congress that he had to go more conservative. And then at that point, and I'll ask for your confirmation on this, but it seems like that's, if, if I'm to look for a point where the Democratic Party started to walk away from uh, from the union roots, it was really that point. It, do, do you agree there? Or, or, or do you think there's like another point in history where, where they kind of made that departure?
0: No, previous Democratic presidents And hearkened back to FDR because FDR did so much for working people, even though he was this rich guy. He and his wife um, had these uh, labor connections and uh, they changed so much. And it wasn't until 1947, uh, two years after his death, that uh, they uh, passed Taft-Hartley, which was um, taking back a lot of the power that they had given to the working class. And uh, it was business plan all along. They tried to paint FDR as some kind of um, socialist, but uh, it wouldn't uh, hold water because there were was a very strong socialist uh, group at the time. So it was a matter of uh, trying to um, to show that uh, Clinton had moved away from that uh, FDR uh, New uh, Deal uh, approach, and that uh, we are now looking at this global world that uh, needed to be dealt with at a global level. So that was the, the big difference uh, between uh, what had happened before with, with presidents and, and then this new guy coming in from a right-to-work state, Arkansas.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, as that's going on politically, because that's really when I started to, uh, you know, that's really when I started to notice that democratic policies didn't always uh, align with the American worker. What do you feel the union response to that was? Because I feel like the unions almost still went in lockstep with Democratic leadership, despite the fact that there were a lot of these policies coming out that were really hurting their members.
0: Somewhat. Uh, I think that uh, we uh, took some major blows under Reagan. And I think we were actually afraid to say too much uh, because we were afraid that he was not only going to bend us he was going to break us. yeah. And that could very well have happened. And under uh, Clinton, uh, I was uh, very much a leader at the time. I um, met so many people from uh, Clinton's administration. And uh, so we had access to these folks. In fact, Robert Reich, when he became Secretary of Labor, I went in to, uh, to uh, interview the, his uh, number one uh, uh, assistant uh, because he came from my union. So I I really had strong, um, a strong belief that this was going to be okay. But as you Mm -hmm. pointed out that uh, a couple of years later, things changed drastically. And I think that's uh, if we talk about Obama later on, I think he went to Bill and said, uh, well, how should I handle this presidential thing? And and Bill said, well, first thing you do is co-opt the uh, Republican agenda so that there is no surprises. That they can't raise these things against you because you're doing them yourself, and I—I I don't think the Republican Party uh, wanted a black man to—to co-opt their uh, agenda, and uh, they became the party of no at that point.
1: I hope you're enjoying this episode, and I wanted to take a short break to share ways you can learn more about the electoral reform movement that is gaining steam in this country, if the uptick in listeners to YDHTY is any indication. Now, first, as I've mentioned before... Over the past few months, I've been working with an organization called Rank the Vote, and their goal is to bring ranked choice voting to every state in the union. And while there are so many ways we can reform government, ranked choice voting remains, in my opinion, the least drastic, most feasible, and most effective way to get the kind of diversity in American politics we need. And if you'd like to help, you can visit rankthevote.us to learn more. Second... I want to hear from you, so let me know what you think of this episode or others you've listened to, or just give me suggestions on topics and guests by visiting ydhty.com or hitting me up on social media. Twitter seems the place you like to talk, so feel free to grab me there. And to the folks I've chatted with before, you've been a huge help in the growth of the show. Thank you very much for all of your comments and suggestions. And I'd love to get more people in the conversation. Let us get back to the episode. Even today, union leadership still supports Democratic candidates. But their membership has really swung for, really, in my mind, at least from my observation, swung for Trump in 2016. I mean, I can't tell you one, and I know a few folks who are, who are, who are uh, union guys who uh, all swung for Trump in 2016, despite the fact that uh, leadership was looking in the other direction. Um, was, there, was there stuff that happened under Obama that made that whole process worse?
0: Yeah, again, I think uh, Obama was. Uh, he started out saying all the right things, and, mm-hmm. and uh, he started uh, with his first uh, act was the Lily Ledbetter act. Lily Ledbetter was someone who said that uh, women should get paid as much as men, and, and she blew mm-hmm. her uh, particular job wide open to show how this disparity had been going on forever. And so um, that was a, a shot over the bow. Business that uh, we weren't going to accept things like that anymore, and it looked very promising in the beginning. And um, again, we had uh, some access to um, people within uh, Obama's cabinet, but uh, mm-hmm. those that two-year window there, uh, where uh, we had uh, all the houses and and uh, all the the advantages, uh, things did not uh, transpire the way they should have. Uh, so much could have been accomplished and uh, that time was wasted. And, and then the Republicans came back to power and and uh, there was nothing he could accomplish.
1: Yeah. I, I think the, the big question I have, I have for you here then is, you know, the, the, the relationship between the, the unions mm-hmm. and the democratic party was one where you give us policies, we will give you votes. So, who were the Democrat, who was the Democratic Party serving if they weren't serving the unions?
0: Uh, corporate. Uh, mm-hmm. Back about that time, uh, there was a guy, um, out of the United Steelworkers, who tried to uh, start a labor party. It was the mm-hmm. first of many, uh, not the first, it was the latest of many attempts to create a labor party. And he said at the time, um, business has two parties, so we need a party for us. Yeah. Because under clinton and, and kept moving in that direction was this whole uh, idea that uh, in order to win elections against the republicans we had to uh, match them dollar for dollar and the only way you could do that was getting the big bucks yeah uh, I, uh, they came to labor a lot for that and finally uh here in los angeles the labor leader uh, miguel Cotrero said we're not going to be an atm for the democratic Party anymore." of course nothing really changed but uh he did make that brave stance
1: well he said it so that's that's a start i think and that's one of the one of the big recommendations you have in terms of reforms is actually a labor party right
0: yes uh but i don't know if that ship has sailed to tell you the truth because uh to uh, mount a major party in these uh, times uh takes a lot of money and that money's got to somewhere and a lot of labor folks have given in to, to the fact that uh it's too late uh, That this isn't going to happen and back in 1894 was the first attempt and that was samuel gompers it was this big um uh not depression but recession at the time and yeah. he said he looked around and said we can't start a labor party under these circumstances and so uh, at that time we actually uh we and uh Australia, we're looking at creating um, a labor party, but uh, Samuel Gompers said no, and, and the Australians started their labor party. They're actually the very first labor party, even before England, and oh, uh, and that party has stayed strong and it stayed uh, dedicated to uh, the principles that working people need uh, advocates in the uh, in the parliament or in leadership.
1: I think one of the other problems here now too, is that, you know, union membership is probably a, its lowest it's ever been. And so we and now assume... It's between, on, nine, sorry.
0: it's between 9 and 10% at this point. And yeah. it, at one point, I think it was uh, something like 45% right after World War Two.
1: I want to get into your, to your book a little bit here, because, you know, just to recap maybe what we've talked about <laughs> prior to now, you know, when, when you really started your career at AT&T, there was representation for the workers. There was a union that uh, represented your best interests. And and it seems to me like it's kind of tough to tell whether it was a murder or a suicide from the way you describe it, you know? Because it, <laughs> it, it, it sounds like there was, there was certainly a need for the business to adapt and change. And it sounds like, the, at least at AT&T, the unions really took a more adversarial uh, approach um, and, and, and now, of course, we're in this globalized environment where nobody's immune from uh, competition worldwide.
0: That was one of the great awakenings was the fact that we realized with technology the way it uh, leapfrogged, uh, they uh, the company could now <clears throat> take a job that was in California, flick a switch, and now that job was in Texas. Part of the leadership of my particular union when I was president said, uh, well, we can't be uh, stirring the pot too much. We can't be too militant because that job is uh, here in California in our local and tomorrow it could be somewhere else. So we can't make any ways. We can't uh, rock the boat.
1: Yeah.
0: but No, we have to, because I refuse to die the death from a thousand cuts.
1: Well, and that's kind of what it's like. I mean, even you look at the, you know, one of the, one of the unions that's managed to survive the teacher's union and Really, what they've done over the years is they've traded pay for benefits. And it's gotten to the point now where they, I mean, in some states, you couldn't possibly pay them any less. You know, you have teachers who are forced to work two or three jobs um, just to make ends meet. Um, but on top of it, those those benefits are sort of IOUs in the form of pension obligations that may or may not be there when they retire. Um and so I hear you there. It seems like it seems like in a lot of ways, leadership is really maybe not made or has, 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 how do I put it? It seems like in a lot of ways, like you said, like membership is almost, the leadership's almost made like a devil's bargain in a way where yes. they kind of feel like if they just kind of stay the course enough, things are going to turn their way and it just hasn't happened. Um, what do you feel then? So kind of getting into your book. What are some of the bigger ways or bigger systemic things that you think disadvantage the middle class?
0: I think that um, one is the the low uh, amount of uh, union uh, membership. Membership is a big deal because without the uh, high percentage, without the high density of labor folks, it gives you uh, a disadvantage when it comes to negotiating because uh, even in an in industry like telecommunications, there are people who are outside the, the labor union uh, family, but yet we sort of set the standard as far as wages and benefits because the companies that don't have union don't want to have union come in, so they try to say, oh, well, uh, we're going to pay the same amount of money, we're going to give you the same amount of benefits because we don't need a union in here. But unions are necessary because you've got grievances, uh, things where uh, people get treated disparately. And uh, that's one of the the big deals that unions can provide is is, uh, uh, it may go to arbitration, which means more money. And uh, without that, uh, that's why right to work, which came about through the Taft-Hartley Act, was so damaging to unions and it's now in 26 states, including Michigan, where Walter is yep. busy spinning in his grave because this should never happen. Uh, and, and it's due, as you said, to the unfunded uh, pensions that, that have uh, accumulated over the, the decades.
1: You know, one of the things you mentioned earlier on when we were talking was you talked about how AT&T was trying to adopt a Japanese system of labor relations and where the we're really instead of resolving these things through arbitration and grievances and such the issues are really resolved right then and there you know the one key difference i think between japan and the united states is that in japan you lose your job you've still got your health care your kid still has their health care your kid still has the opportunity to go to college like there isn't the the stakes aren't as high uh, I think, in Japan and in other rich countries as they are here, where really you're out of a job. Do you feel like more government support is needed on that side?
0: Well, that's interesting because uh, uh, other unions, for instance, you may have heard of the Wobblies, the inter- industrial workers of the world. Uh, when they uh, came about, they said that we were going to be all one big union. And they uh, did not like the idea of going to government to to take care of some of these things. They, their idea was that all these things should be at the bargaining table instead of um, relying on the government because uh, a law that was passed today could uh, easily go away tomorrow. So yeah. they it's got to be in the contract or it isn't real. So I think that um, in some ways they're right about that. In other ways, I think we've accomplished so much because uh, public outrage has uh, led to things like uh, uh, child labor laws and and health and safety laws. And, and a lot of those were gutted under Trump. And uh, uh, we're doing a 180 in this country now and bringing those kinds of things back. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm excited about that possibility that we can actually turn this whole thing around through laws and also uh, at the bargaining table.
1: I know is as you get, as people get progressively younger in the workforce, have really no membership of uh, in era where unions were strong, like, how, how do you feel you speak to those folks? How do you get those folks to kind of see the benefits versus just kind of taking what's, what's being offered to them on the market now?
0: Oh, to tell you the truth, that's one of the reasons why I wrote my book, um, started out as a memoir talking about all the things that I'd seen, like the air traffic controller strike and NAFTA and the Maquiladoras and, all that stuff that had transpired during my time as a labor leader, but yeah. I realized that may not be relevant to today's workers. So I started researching uh, things like the gig economy, universal basic income, and, and uh, also the things that have um, that we brought along with us through the ages. Things like the criminal justice system, or injustice, mm-hmm. I should say the healthcare debate. All that I tried to show, um, draw a dotted line from where we were to where we're headed. And um, the whole premise of the book is that uh, what's going to save the middle class is a strong labor movement.
1: I feel like people are, are stressed and they don't even know why. <laughs> there, there was an age when people would start a job at one company with the idea they'd retire there.
0: That's where the company was um, uh, agreed with what uh, you're saying. Yeah. And that and the phone company, it created dynasties within families. Uh, if you're, um, your grandmother worked there and, uh, and that's where she met your grandfather and mm-hmm. uh, the, your dad worked there and, and now you work there and, and your kid's probably going to work there. And that was one of the pieces that went out the window with uh, the breakup of the phone company. I'll talk to your point about millennials uh, and uh, the new generations that haven't had that experience with labor movement. It's it's funny because I've seen a resurgence of labor movement. It's like millennials think it's a no-brainer that uh, they need some kind of job security and, and protections. And and I've taken uh, so much to heart seeing that uh, because it gives me a renewed faith and hope that the next generation is going to be okay and, and we'll get things back on track.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's funny you say that because – I think that, you know, I'm generation X, so I'm kind of like, I, I kind of came of age when the things people used to take it for granted started disappearing, you know, but didn't come of age at an era where so much had disappeared that I had a reason to be angry about it. And, uh-huh. uh, and I think with millennials, you're seeing um, a, a lot of these people carrying enormous student debt having a lot of the vehicles of upward mobility shut off to them. So for example, home ownership's out of the question now. And yeah. I think things have almost reached such a level that the bargain just no longer makes sense. One of the things that, I've, that we've talked a lo- about a lot on this show has been debt. One of the points that seems historically significant is when Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard. And mm. it was really at that point that you started to see government spending that was not aligned with tax receipts, um, and you also started to see uh, a lot of these changes happen in the economy, such as like w- wages starting to stagnate, uh, benefits starting to decline, and such. Back, let's say, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, when you know, even nineteen seventies, what we'll call kind of the golden age of the American worker. Um, during that period of time profit and productivity were interlinked you know a profitable company was was interlinked with the productivity of its workers and, and it seems to me that once we went into this world of of easy money or easier money once we went into this world of deficit spending and debt you know what we started to see is a lot of that a lot of that extra money started to find its way into uh, assets and into the stock market into the ways executives typically make their money and it seems at that point that you know really the value of the American worker started to diminish because a CEO can make enormous sums of money for example uh, by doing things acting in a way that the market re- that the market likes but isn't necessarily good to the people who are actually producing do you have any thoughts on that I know I just threw a big one at you but I, I huh.
0: Um, no, I think you're you're right on. Uh, I think uh, uh, that's when CEO pay started to out, drastically outpace uh, the uh, average wage of the workers for the same company. And uh, when we saw that disparity, that actually started the whole income inequality gap. And I think that um, that is one of the areas that we need to get under control. And uh, I, I don't know how we're going to do it because... Obviously, these CEOs aren't, aren't going to want to make less money, but I think that's what it's going to come uh, down to. I think we're going to have to make some drastic changes in the way that we uh, uh, reward uh, everybody from the CEO on down to the shop floor.
1: Yeah, I have been waiting for somebody to come on the show and tell me how this ends well. And so far, I have not found one person who's been able to offer a rosy scenario for how we get our way out of this. I think a lot of it is just like, eventually, we're going to have to come to grips with the fact that that we, we're going to have to find some way to deflate the balloon, I think. And none of them are politically palatable or painless.
0: Yeah, I've uh, actually been looking at that issue for one of the sequels of my book uh, called um, uh, um, Capitalism Kills the Global Edition. Uh, um, there's a report that the UN puts out every year where they measure income inequality. And uh, America happens to be the worst as far as that goes. Norway is uh, not Nor- yes, It's Norway is the best. And uh, I, I compare Norway, France, uh, Morocco and Thailand and the way they treat their workers because that uh, is part of the whole equation with income inequality is uh, what percentage do you pay your workers? And uh, you look at these third world countries, uh, Mexico, for instance, is still, uh, their uh, minimum wage is 50 cents an hour or $4 a day. And uh, you can't, uh, America cannot uh, compete with that, but in the other ways that we we can. And, and yet, um, income inequality, despite the fact that they're getting such, his poor pay, if you'll excuse me, in Mexico um, widens that gap. And, and w- one of the things that the labor movement will do is yeah. maybe close that gap somewhat by um, having the support of uh, people like Joe Biden and uh, Marty uh, Walsh.
1: Yeah, I'm, well, oh, I
0: mean, I'm so excited to see this uh, labor leader become the uh, new Secretary of Labor. I have a lot of uh, hopes on, uh, with him. But he comes from the most conservative part of the labor movement, which is the building trades.
1: Yeah. Well, and Marty Walsh is the real deal, too. I mean, if you look, if anybody wants to look at what the remainders of the, you know, of the working class Democrats look like, just look at Boston. You've got Marty Walsh. uh, Stephen Lynch was another one. He's my representative. He uh, headed up the Iron Workers Union before getting injured and, and going to law school. These folks, too, are like they're not. I don't know how to put it, but when you talk about the Democratic Party, a lot of times, you know, people will talk about, you know, Bernie Sanders. They'll talk about AOC. They'll talk about Elizabeth Warren. Um, you don't hear a lot about these people who really represent um, a group that I, I think really built the Democratic Party or kept the Democratic Party in power for many years, and in a lot of ways have had the party turn their backs on them. The question I have for you is: So, if I'm listening to this, and you know, I, I really want to want to participate in this movement, you know, what are some ways I can I can do that?
0: Well, despite all its uh, drawbacks, the Democratic Party uh, does have it within their charter that uh, working people and unions, especially, mm-hmm. um, need to be at the table. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one way get involved in uh, your local elections. Uh, uh, state, federal, anything that you can do to to help uh, influence the direction. For instance, we just had a Democratic convention here in California, and uh, what we saw is this: uh, the old guards uh, sort of take uh, take everything back over again. There was some concern because of what happened in Nevada that the uh, Progressive uh, Caucus or the Progressives were going to take over the party like they did in Nevada, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, Things went uh, traditional here, and and, uh, it's going to be two years before anybody from the progressive movement or any uh, any other uh, faction is going to be able to uh, influence the party. So um, getting involved that way is a good way to do it. And to uh, maybe talk about getting a union in your place. You were talking earlier about what things can we look forward to. The PRO Act is one of them. If the PRO Act passes, it'll be much easier to uh have a uh, organize a union for your workplace. And there are unions out there now that are doing things that are outside the box. My union uh, that I'm currently belong to, the National Writers Union, uh, is uh, making uh freelance agreements with uh magazines that are our natural allies like In These Times and mm-hmm. uh S Magazine and those kinds of magazines that are that are pro labor. And uh, that's that's the way that uh, we can bridge that gap in uh, all the things that uh, w- uh, working people uh, want in their lives. Uh, the, uh, we need to pass um, Medicare for all. That's another area that uh, could use help. And, and uh, being uh, issues oriented is not a bad idea either because uh, all these issues, the Green New Deal, all these, uh, the just transition, I don't, we didn't talk about that. the just transition was something that was created in 1992 by Mm -hmm. European unions, and they really expected uh, the U.S. unions to get on board. But we were enamored with uh, Bill Clinton at the time, and so we didn't necessarily see the need as strongly as European unions did. That uh, if you if you want to clean up polluted sites, if you want to get rid of those kind of jobs uh, of uh, non-sustainable energy, you need to uh, get those people those jobs so that they can be part of the, the change, because otherwise they'll fight it tooth the nail as we've seen here in this country with uh, the building trades
1: yeah and there's there's one thing I want to I want to pick out of what you said which I really love and something I hammer a lot on this show which is the power of starting local um, yes. because because I think we all tend to you know, kind of almost have our eyes glued to the television when it comes to politics. And we all tend to really look at the big sort of national issues that get a lot of attention. But, you know, the reality is even if you take a look at the recent restrictions on voting rights, that was happening at the state level. That was happening at a level that each of us can participate in and each of us can have a much greater impact in. So, again, I'll just echo your sentiment and tell folks there that, you know, there is no harm in starting local. And there is no harm in getting involved with, involved with organizations that uh, represent the causes that you're looking to promote. That book again is Capitalism Killed the Middle Class 25 Ways the System is Rigged Against You. You can get it on Amazon.com or find a link to it in the show notes on YDHTY.com. Go to the homepage, click episodes, you will find it there. If you like this episode, please share it and leave it a review. And if you haven't subscribed yet, consider this your invitation. Now, a couple things I wanted to cite about this episode. First thing is that there were three parties complicit in the decline of the labor movement. The first is obviously the Republican Party, who endorsed policies that really ran counter to a lot of those the labor movement stood on. The second were the Democrats, who actually ran on policies the labor movement endorsed, but then just didn't enact any of them when in office, and in a lot of cases, enacted policies that ran counter to them. Now, the last one is the labor movement itself, which very often made concessions that weren't in their best interest in the interests of holding power. And the second thing that kind of dovetails off that. Is that if you look at countries where the labor movement's still strong, they also have very strong multi partisan democracies. Part of the reason that the labor movement had to take what they could get here is there are only two shows in town. And they quite literally were choosing the lesser of two evils. So just goes to prove my thesis once again that multi partisan democracy could do a lot. One last fun fact before we go. The world celebrated May Day this week, which is a day dedicated to the labor movement, and the only country it's not celebrated in is the United States, which, oddly enough, is the country that invented it. Go figure. As usual, music courtesy of Quell YDHTY's editorial advisor is Adam, does whatever a spider can, Yaffe, YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.